0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Milady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 271 Or send an email to openline at ewtn.com.
1: A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Milady is on vacation, but that did not keep him away from Open Line Thursday. He is here and ready to go. If you've got a question for Father Brian, the number is 833 288 EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. 271 2985 And um, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And, excuse me, Ace McKay, once again, our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday the aforementioned Father Brian Milady. How are you? I'm just peachy, thank you. So you're 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 resting in suburban Los Angeles. Yes,
2: yeah, a beautiful Alhambra with the Carmelite sisters.
1: Yeah, well there you go. Well, listen, uh, your home and native land um, could use a little transfiguring. That's true. <laughs> well, the whole country, whole world, actually. <laughs> so you're going to talk yeah, a little bit I, about, I uh, transfiguring, about transfiguring in general, huh? Go ahead. I was just going to say, you're going to talk a little bit about uh, transfiguring in uh, in particular here. Right.
2: Well, you know, I've talked about the transfiguration once during Lent, but, you know, we're having the Feast of the Transfiguration soon, too. And people may wonder why we do it twice. Well, the reason is because, A, it's such an important episode in the life of our Lord. And when you think about it, almost all the Gospels mention it, and— it has to do with witnessing to Christ's divinity and his humanity. And what would the witnesses be? Well, the first is the place because they go up a mountain and in the ancient world, they believe that God met human beings on mountains. So that's why their temples, you know, were set up on artificial mountains. And even the temple in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, it was one of the most prominent places in the city. In addition to this, the Lord, who um, up to this point has not demonstrated anything except the miracles, but nothing particularly unusual about his personhood, first of all, appears with Moses and Eliah. They're the witnesses of the Old Testament, because Moses represents the law and Eliah represents the prophets. And they speak with him, not traditionally, what people believe they talked about was the passion. And the reason the transfiguration was given to the apostles was to prepare themselves for the scandal of the cross. These witnesses are important, but also the witnesses of the New Testament. So you have Peter, the first pope. You have John, the beloved, the divine, the contemplative. And then you have James, the first martyr of the church, uh, as not uh, chronologically, but as the apostles, the first apostolic martyr, because, of course, Stephen is the first martyr who also witnessed this scene. And then you also have the witness from heaven, because you have the bright shining cloud and the voice of the Father that speaks and says, and, of course, the voice is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the word this is my beloved son, hear him, and also Jesus allows the glory of his divinity, this is not a resurrected body, he allows the glory of his divinity to shine through the flesh of his humanity. And remember the disciples are at first dazzled by all this, it's it's variously recounted, they didn't know where they were exactly, And Peter, of course, says, let's set up three tents, one for Moses, Elijah, and you. Because what they're doing is witnessing this extraordinary manifestation of the second person of the blessed Trinity in flesh. And because they're discussing the passion, what they're uh, talking about is the principal episode of Jesus's life, which, of course, will cause lots of scandal to lots of people because how could God possibly die? Well, he doesn't die in his divinity, but he dies in his humanity. The person of the word who is divine and there's only one person in Jesus, not only uh, dies on the cross, but he also shows this personhood because he's in heaven, but he's also on earth in the brightness of his own human flesh. So our reaction should be, first of all, and it's interesting that John Paul II, used this particular uh, episode in scripture as the privileges discussion of religious life, but to view the world from the transfiguration, in other words, from the top down, from eternity down, is not a perspective that's natural to us in the sense that we can attain it by ourselves. But it is a perspective that's natural to us in the sense that because we have an intellect and will, we can only eventually appreciate time in its proper context if we view it through eternity. And that's what the transfigured modern transfiguration is about. So we look down with our Lord transfigured onto the world and see everything that's happening in time from the standpoint of eternity. And what should our reaction be? Well, remember what Peter says. Lord, it's good that we are here.
1: 833-288 EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. You know, when uh Saint John Paul the Great uh gave us the luminous mysteries of the rosary. Um, I saw a meditation for the fourth luminous mystery, which is the transfiguration. Yes. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this. And it focused on uh, us allowing the light and the brilliance of Christ to shine into those dark corners of our lives that need to be changed.
2: Yes, I think that's a very beautiful idea. And what it basically <clears throat> emphasizes— Is that the grace of the hypostatic union, which Christ expresses in his grace of his humanity, is also the means by which we experience grace also. Now, of course, we're not transfigured the way Jesus is, because we're not the person of the word. But the light which Christ shines forth from his own person is something that through faith we, as you were pointing out, have to allow to shine in our inner self.
1: 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. We have an anonymous viewer on YouTube uh, who asked the question, and you you, you may have to, to uh, address the premise of the question before you answer the question, if gambling is a sin, is participating in church raffles a sin too?
2: Well, gambling in itself isn't a sin. It's gambling to excess when you don't have the money. So, things like you know, horse races in roulette in Vegas and all that stuff. If you, if you don't have the money to do it and you know we have hordes and hordes of retirees who go to Atlantic mm. City And spend their retirement check on the on the one armed bandits or whatever they call them now. Mm -hmm. I notice they're all electrified now, like computers, (laughs) and you don't pull any levers or anything. I
1: think most of them still have a lever for those who.
2: Yeah, but that that,
1: I don't think that would be a good idea.
2: Provided you've made yourself a level which you're willing to lose, you know, like five dollars or something like that. But I know that. For example, in Foxwoods Casino, when they first opened in New England, they had a suicide every week. Mm. And there are lots of places where people go and they bet their whole lives Mm. and they don't own their home anymore. They own their, they have nothing. Most gambling parlors, when they first started out many years ago, if they had the idea that was happening, they wouldn't let it happen. They'd set an artificial limit. But today, uh, it, it does. Now, church raffles, well, what you're doing is giving something somebody a prize uh, for contributing to the mission of the church. And I don't really look on that as the same thing. For one thing, church raffle tickets are normally rather inexpensive, <laughs> and most people can afford them. It's not the same as uh, professional gambling, which you have to be very, uh, Um,
1: astute 833-288-EWTN is our toll free number it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question call 1-833-288-EWTN That's 1-833-288-3986 Outside North America Call 1205 271 2985 or send us an email to openline at ewtn.com.
1: Great item at EWTN's religious catalog Jesus with Children. It's a 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. So, those of you that are puzzle enthusiasts, uh, piecing together a jigsaw puzzle is an activity that is both fun and educational for kids. Fully interlocking and randomly shaped pieces provide a truly pleasant puzzle building experience. Each jigsaw puzzle is produced on thick, premium quality board, so every completed puzzle is ready for mounting and framing if you so choose. And this puzzle, as I said, has a thousand pieces and when it's finished it measures about 27 inches by 19 inches. You can visit EWTNRC.com for many beautiful puzzles that they have to choose from and they're offering um free online uh, free standard shipping rather on online orders of $75 or more that's standard shipping in the continental US only use the code free at checkout at ewtnrc.com 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. First up today is Todd in the Republic of Texas listening on the EWTN app. Todd, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program.
3: Hey, guys. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Just a quick question for uh, Padre here. Um, I'll make it real short. Um, Why did Pope Benedict quit? I thought the papacy was for
1: life.
2: Uh, well, the papacy is for life, but like many people today, we live so long that um, and and you know people get in poor health or they don't feel they can do the thing anymore. Um, they feel that the responsibility is too much for them. Now, of course, the papacy isn't a um, an order like being a bishop would be. So he changes for someone else, and there actually was one pope many years ago in history, about so maybe about thirteen or 1,400, who resigned from the papacy because it's an office in the church. It's not an order. But even uh, things like abbots in monasteries who were supposed to be for life, they just feel that they're exhausted from trying to govern people, especially people who don't want to be governed in monasteries, and so they become uh, kind of retired abbots or abbot emeritus, they call them, and then they elect a new younger person who's more, who can do the job more easily. Now, Pope Benedict discerned for various reasons that he was unable to continue in an effective way being pope, and so he chose to become like a pope emeritus. So the church could elect someone else who perhaps had more stamina than he did or for various reasons was better able to uh, occupy and to do the job involved. He said at one time that part of his difficulty was traveling and he knew today because of John Paul II, the papacy had to travel a lot. And so he didn't feel he could do that. And And I'm sure there were other reasons too. In fact, I know there were. But it was just that he felt he was unable to continue effectively uh, doing the job.
1: 833 288. EWTN is our toll free number. 833 288 3986. We head from the Republic of Texas to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Ed is a first time caller in York, PA, uh, listening to us on Holy Family Radio. Ed, you're on with Father Brian.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm getting back to the Rosary and the Glorious Mysteries, the last one, we uh, contemplate Mary being crowned Queen of Heaven and Earth. And I belong to a local chapter of uh, That Man is You, and we promote understanding and, and of, of Joseph. So in that vein, is it possible to infer that the husband of the queen of heaven and earth could be the prince of heaven and earth. I don't uh, Something I've been thinking about lately, and I've uh, never heard it talked about, so I don't know if it's legitimate or not, no one
2: to ask. So. Uh, well, I don't think that title has ever been applied to St. Joseph for various reasons. Um, of course, Christ is the king and Mary's the queen. And I doubt that Joseph will be looked upon as the king, as Jesus' son. It's the other way around. And also, Joseph is basically known for his silence, humility. In a sense, you could say that he represents the devout Christian in the presence of the mystery of Mary and uh, our Lord. Of course, Mary is the first of all the Christians. But Joseph is her earthly spouse, would Be the second, but I, I don't think the term Prince can be applied to him. No,
1: thanks, Ed. We appreciate the phone call today. 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number. One line open for you at 833 288 3986. Next up is Tim in the great state of Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Tim, you're on with Father Brian.
3: Hi, Father Brian. Um, I just have a quick question Can you clarify the um quote in the bible where it says fear is the beginning of wisdom
2: excuse me what the quote is what
3: where fear is the beginning of wisdom
2: oh the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom Uh, what it means is respect for the lord in this case or respect for the truth it doesn't mean fear in the sense of servile fear or terror what it means is what we used to call filial fear which is the um fear a son would have to offend a father and the respect that this would engender, which would allow the son to learn from the father. So how on earth are we going to have wisdom if we don't have respect for the fact that God is more intelligent than we are? And as you know, today in our world, we're looking at exactly the opposite uh, problem. Most people think that they're more intelligent than God. And so they feel they can change his creation, change his sexuality, change all those things. Now, respect for the Lord and his all-encompassing wisdom, power and truth and love is the beginning of what it means to look at things in perspective. Because the word wisdom also refers to experiencing the proper ordering of things based on what's first or most important in the order. And God is first and most important in the order of the world, and he's also its purpose.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Brian is in Twin Valley, Minnesota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Brian, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello! Hello!
3: See, my question is... I heard a little bit ago that God doesn't change the outcome through our prayer. But didn't, didn't Jesus come back and say that the Father gave me all authority in heaven and earth and, and wouldn't, like, praying to Mary? To go, I believe she's called redempt, redemption, whatever, however you say that. Like the Pope's old would say. And wouldn't, wouldn't your prayer be
2: heard? I didn't quite get it all. Um, what's the question again? Well, the question is, did
3: Jesus come back and say, the Father gave me authority in all heaven and earth?
2: Yes, he has all authority in heaven and earth.
3: Okay, so does praying to him, praying to Mary, can that advocate
4: Jesus to change his mind?
2: Uh. No, not really. This is actually a famous difficulty here invoking whether our prayers change God's will or not. And uh, St. Augustine wrote about it in a thing called the letter to Proba. And what he explains there is very clear that a part of the will of God is that we would pray or not pray. So in a sense, we're a part of the conforming of the will of God by our choosing to ask for this in prayer but God doesn't prayer doesn't exist to change God, it exists to change us. And that's why the we realize that we rely for everything upon him, and we express our needs in this way. But remember, a part of our prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we don't change God's mind. What we try to do, or even Jesus's, or Mary's, or whatever, What we try to do is discover what that might be and hope that what we need is a part of it.
1: Thanks, Brian. We appreciate that phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Anna Maria is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know if Luke always omits all the references to the Law of Moses because he was writing to the Gentiles, unlike Matthew, who referenced the Old Covenant often.
2: Well, I I don't have a window into Luke's mind. (laughs) However, you're right about the purpose of the Gospels. And this is seen in the fact, for example, of the infancy narratives. In Matthew, we have Joseph's perspective because that's for the Jewish mission. And the Jews did not particularly respect the testimony of women. And also, that's why Matthew uses, as you say, the old law a great deal. In Luke, which is being written as a a companion of Paul's mission to the Gentiles, the Gentiles, for example, did accept the testimony of women. And so we have the same infancy Christ, you know, his conception and things, examined from Mary's perspective. And when Luke feels called upon to the Gentile audience to explain, as I recall, why a given thing happens or whatever, because they wouldn't understand it because they don't know the old law, then he does that specifically. But normally he doesn't feel called upon to demonstrate how what Christ does in the scriptures relates to every the passages that the Jews would be very interested in.
1: And uh, our old friend Lulu is watching on YouTube, and I'm not quite sure I completely understand the question, but she wants to know if the word church came about from Protestant.
2: I don't particularly understand the question either. The word church is a translation of Ecclesia or kahal or, uh, and it means an assembly of believers, basically. And uh, And that the, term would
1: have preceded any Protestant sect.
2: Oh, yes, very much so, by a thousand years. Um, in fact, it's interesting that when the Vatican Council was discussing our relationship with the Protestants, They didn't use the word church for them. They used ecclesial community. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to make a distinction between that and the real churches, which would be the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches. It's very interesting the distinction they draw there between the two. Because the, the Protestants have many elements, of course, they share with us. And that's what the Vatican Council wanted to recognize. They also have certain elements they don't share with us, and in fact, various parts of our religion that they deny. And so they can't fully participate in the conception of church. And as you, and you know, today also is really interesting. We have all these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, mm-hmm. who say, well, I'm I'm religious, but I don't believe in the church.
1: <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Carlos and Luis, and hopefully you.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: A big shout-out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, St. Gabriel Radio in Columbus, Ohio, celebrating 17 years with EWTN radio this week. Congratulations to Bill Messerly and his great team in Columbus and Portsmouth, celebrating 17 years of solid Catholic radio with EWTN. 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number. One open line for you at 833 288 3986. Next up is Carlos, a first time caller in the great state of Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Carlos, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Ah, Father, good to hear your voice on the other end. <laughs> uh, a question for you. In our earthly form,
3: we have a, a mind and intellect. And, of course, when we pass, the body flesh falls away. What happens to the intellect? In other words, when you transition to heaven, do we have a different mind or do we have a new mind? Or do we remember everything we had here?
2: Well, right, Well, there's several questions there. First of all, we have a body and we have a soul. Our soul is Spiritual. The intellect and the will are powers of that spiritual soul which forms our personhood. So when our body dies, that soul is immortal and remains, and so does the intellect and will. Things which are our intellect and will, not some new new one. And we're waiting for the reconstitution of our body and our soul again in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. From Earth, we take all of our memories. So if you, your loved ones, your, your spouse, your children, your pets, all those things, those are all with you because they're all part of your memory, which is a part of your mind, your intellect, which remains the same as, uh, as your soul, a part of your soul. Also in your soul, those things are all transfigured in God. So you see God as he is. And this light, which is actually captivates us, we don't captivate it, it captivates us. The so-called lumen gloriae, the light of glory. It takes over our intellect, of course, if we're in heaven, so that we are dazzled and completely fulfilled with the God which we searched for or believed in here on earth. And we see Christ not only in his Uh, well, in his humanity until the second coming. But in the second coming, we also see him in his divinity if we're in the state of grace. Um, So yes, uh, it's the same intellect and the same will and the same passions. We also have passions that we have from earth. Uh, And if we go to heaven, those passions are uh, transfigured in joy, uh, an inexpressible joy that we can't uh, have. So, yes, it's really you. It's not another person. It's not a duck. It's not a a lamb. It's not an alligator. It's really you, you and your own individuality that perdures after death and eventually, at the end of time, will be reunited to your body because man is not just a spirit. He's also a combination of body and spirit. But the intellect and will are part of your spiritual soul. They're powers of your spiritual soul. And whatever they experienced here on earth, you take with you when you go to heaven.
1: Thanks, Carlos. Good question today. eight three three, two eight eight e w t n is our toll- free number eight three three. 288-3986. Uh, next stop for us is Noblesville, Indiana. Cindy is in the great state of Indiana listening on the Amazon Echo. Cindy, you're on with Father Brian.
4: Hi, Father Brian. Um, my question is on Sunday, uh, the Sabbath, and, and we're supposed to rest. And I truly try to do that. I try not to do anything at all, but... Uh, my daughter was gone on vacation this this past weekend, and I, she has a very large house, and I, I went over to clean her house before she came back. Uh, I couldn't get all of it done in, in one day, so I went back on Sunday just to clean their, their basement because it's their, like, family room. And so then I got to thinking, I know we're not supposed to do anything on Sunday. Now I'm, it bothers me. Um,
2: well, I don't know where you got the idea that I are supposed to do anything on Sunday. You have to cook meals and uh, those kinds of things. Uh, you remember the prohibition is against unnecessary, unnecessary, servile. Servile means uh, lucrative, profitable work. Uh, like sweat over your brow, all that business. If you're a farmer, it's plowing and that kind of thing. But whatever is, and I guess if you worked in an office, it would be having to deal with your coworkers and all the frustration of your office. Unnecessary, servile work. That's what the prohibition is against. So certain necessary tasks are things which, of course, you need to do. And if that's something you're doing in charity for someone else, you know, to try to get their house clean. Well, you know, I wouldn't spend the whole day at it, but I would try to be sure it's in order if I could. Uh, We don't participate in all these um, casuistic difficulties the Jews have about this. You know, they even have what bus you can take on Sunday in Israel and what elevator you can take. And that's all the civil discussions of the parliament, believe it or not. No, 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 it's not supposed to be like that. It's a day where you're supposed to be occupied with thinking about God. The primary way you're occupied with thinking about God is mass. That's why it's essential. Also prayers, or some people used to go to Vespers or the Rosary or something like that. It's not supposed to be just a day to flake out watching football all day, but um, it's unnecessary servile work that is what the prohibition is against. So there's nothing wrong with you cooking meals. There's nothing wrong with you doing some moderate cleaning of your house, if that's the only day you can do it. Um, and, you, and even a little shopping if the stores are open. Now, of course, in many Christian countries, that never used to be open. Now, of course, they're open all 24 hours a day, seven days a week because of the strange merchants who only want profit. But, for example, if you need some food or something like that for your meal, there'd be nothing wrong with that. So I I think that you're being a little too overly scrupulous about it
1: is the way I put it. Does that put your mind at rest, Cindy?
4: It sure does. Thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. We'll go back to the Republic of Texas. That's where Kelly is listening, a first-time caller. Um. he is listening uh, on Guadalupe Radio. Kelly, you're on with Father Brian Mullady.
3: Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for what you guys do. You're welcome. Um, you bet. I, I had a uh, question asked of me that I didn't know how to answer in his bet gender. So the question was, if there is such a thing as hermaphrodites, why, how can you say that God created male and female. So my... Hermaphrodites? (laughs) Hermaphrodites,
2: yes, sir. Yes. Well, there's no such thing as hermaphrodites, naturally speaking. It's a mythological kind of uh, uh, literary sort of thing. Uh, And uh, there are people who perhaps tend more to... uh, one sex or another sex when it comes to living out their sexuality. But I'm sorry, sexuality is determined by chromosomes, and things like that. It's not determined by your psychology. I realize this is heresy today. And, of course, you may and occasionally have nature fail and um, not bring uh, uh, biologically as much as is necessary to complete um, a particular sex. But that's because nature isn't infallible. However, normally speaking, it's all determined by biology. I heard some program recently where they said, well, first the baby's born, and then the doctor determines it's sex, and I said, well, isn't it obvious? <laughs> Why does the doctor have to determine it's sex? Um, I'm sorry, I, this is all this um, connected to this transgenderism, and I think it's rather not only silly but uh it's completely against reason and experience and even science. does
1: that
3: help kelly Yes sir, but if I may, just a little follow up here
2: yeah
3: i went my my answer to that question was about chromosomes, and then I went to the the website of the catholic bio uh medical
1: bioethics official Center. Thing. Mm-hmm.
3: yes sir, and so uh It does say that some people are born with two sex organs, and they are born with, say, three Xs and a Y, not the normal XXXY. So I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but at the same time, how do I answer that question? Because
2: Well, some people are born blind. Does that mean our eyes aren't meant to see? I'm telling you that nature occasionally fails. But we don't judge what nature is by the failures. We judge it by what it normally is. And those examples are very, very rare, if I'm not mistaken. So you're going to judge an entire morality and all that stuff on something that's very, very, very rare and based on some natural aberration in matter? I don't think so.
1: Thanks, Kelly. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Mast Appeal with Colleen Kelly-Mast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Colleen Kelly-Mast offers free, friendly advice, as she puts it, from a Catholic perspective. That's Mast Appeal with Colleen Kelly-Mast, Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. MD is watching us on YouTube and his question is is the garden of eden over and gone since adam and eve fell <laughs> or are we seeing the fallen version of where they lived? <laughs> well, the garden
2: of eden, I believe in the words of John Paul II in Theology of the Body, it's a myth. Now remember what he means by a myth. He doesn't mean a fable. He means a primitive way of expressing philosophical truth. The truth of the Garden of Eden is that before the sin, because man was at peace with God, because he was in the state of grace and there was no sin, he was also at peace with himself and with each other and with his environment. He never exploited his environment. He never used, used it the way it shouldn't be used. Because he respected the laws of the creator and the fact that he was placed here not as a master, but as a steward. This stewardship, of course, was forfeited when man lost grace in the original sin. And so the environment then became hostile, in a sense, to man. And you can see that in the book of Genesis when God calls from heaven and Adam won't answer. And finally he comes out and he says, well, uh, why did you answer me? Oh, I was naked and ashamed. All right, who taught you were naked and ashamed? Have you been eating the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat of? Well, what happens is that we now who are alienated from God because of the original sin, look upon nature as a kind of alienating tool. Um, because nature is not exactly alienated from God. This perhaps was best represented in a a wonderful uh, novel written by C.S. Lewis, a space trilogy novel called Out of the Silent Planet, where a person makes a voyage to another planet and discovers there that since there's no original sin, that that planet's at peace with God, and the Earth is called the silent planet, because of the sin. The rest of nature doesn't communicate with it because it doesn't want to be exploited by us. So we don't look on nature as a rivalry before the sin. But after the sin, we find nothing but danger and rivalry in nature, even though that's not the way it was created to be to begin with. So in answer to your question about whether the Garden of Eden is still with us, well, no, it's not. And the reason is because, uh, remember, Earth, seeks to return to God through us. Without us, all the teeming panoply of nature cannot go back to the God from which it came because a spirit is necessary as a middle ground between the two. Everything that is diverse came from unity and seeks to return to unity. All the lower orders in nature seek to return to unity through us but we can't return to God unless we're in the state of grace. And then, then remember, uh, we, we talk about um, uh, redeeming nature, but nature's redeemed in us because then we return to the way we should have been to begin with slowly but surely.
1: 833 288 EWTN that's our toll free number couple of open lines for you at 833 288 3986 Robert is in Southern California listening on Sirius XM channel 130 Robert thanks for holding welcome to the program uh,
3: Yes thank you uh, my question is that I'd like to know uh, if the church the Catholic church uh, prohibits the use of cannabis Uh, when you
2: use uh, medics? Well, if a doctor should prescribe this as helpful, it's the same as morphine. As you know, morphine can be quite helpful in um, surgeries. I I actually received it once myself when I was a child. I had an appendectomy, an emergency appendectomy, and they gave me morphine, and I was feeling no pain for a whole day. But because it's an addictive drug, uh, and because, especially in marijuana's case, cannabis, it can be mind-altering. Generally speaking, no, it wouldn't be approved. I know there is a thing called medical marijuana on small doses. If a doctor should approve that, and if it does help, then perhaps under those conditions. But, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, there are five marijuana stores within a three-block radius of where I live. That we do not approve. Recreational marijuana we do not approve. And we have known—I've known a number of instances where people have lost their minds from a bad batch. And this is years ago. And now I don't know. I never used it. But what I understand is the marijuana now is much more stronger and therefore more lethal than it was when I was a teenager. So uh, no, we do not approve its use except in very rare circumstances when prescribed by a physician.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We can still squeeze in a couple of phone calls at 833-288-3986. Grace would like to know, uh, what is the difference between God's image and God's likeness? Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) That's an interesting question. Um. I've always interpreted it to be, and I did read one time uh, an interpretation of this, is that the image of God has to do with our souls being in the state of grace. The likeness of God has to do with us having a soul and a body, and a body that expresses our soul. So that's, that's one interpretation of it, and it's just as good as any other. But it basically means in all facets of our being, we are mirrors of God. And in order for that image to be clear, grace is absolutely necessary.
1: 833-288-EWTN, 833 um, 288 Keith would like to know, which one takes precedence? the Bible or traditions of men. <laughs> for example, if the Bible gives different instructions for baptism than what what has been practiced by tradition, which one should we follow? <laughs> well,
2: you know, they had a long discussion about that in, in the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council. And the traditional teaching of the Church is um, and they use Latin words for this, interestingly enough. And it's true about many things. Catholics do not think vel vel, either scripture or tradition. They think et et, both scripture and tradition. Now, I'm not aware of any disagreement between scripture and tradition concerning the nature of baptism. The formula certainly is in the scripture that we use. And, you know, the pouring of water, Uh, well, you have the example of the uh, eunuch from the court of the Candace where St. Philip baptizes him, and they just find some water and pour it over his head. If you're aware of some discrepancy in that regard, I'd love to know, but I'm not aware of any discrepancy about that. So um, both have to be— Affirm because they're equal sources of divine revelation and they can't be played off against each other.
1: 833 288 3986 is our toll free number. Joe would like to know why priests can't hear confessions over the phone.
2: Oh, uh, well, okay, that's, it. I think, an actually easy thing to figure out. First of all, confession is an extremely personal act. And it's not, you're not really confessing to a priest. You have to remember that. The priest represents Christ. You're confessing to Christ. So to try to uh, move this to an artificial device would be to make this much less personal. And also... Well, if we hear confessions over the phone, you know, there are people that can tap your phone or whatever. It's supposed to be done where you have the assurance that your conscience is only being revealed to Christ. Because remember, the priest can never say anything about it, he can't even by sign. I've had Catholics, they're very confused about the confessional seal. I remember someone tried to get me to talk about a confession, and I said, I can't talk about that. Well, can't you just shake your head yes you know? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can't by any sign demonstrate that you know anything about this at all. And that's true even if you're accused of something evil in the confessional. You can't defend yourself. There's no way because you're bound by the seal. And I have to tell you that in the modern world, this whole attempt to reduce everything to artificial communication like mass over TV. Well, there's nothing wrong with going to mass over TV, but it doesn't satisfy your Sunday obligation, okay? Because it's an impersonal act. And I live in a religious order now where they some people do corrections or communicate only by cell phone, by text. I'm sorry. I consider that to be a manipulative, impersonal act, It's one thing to talk about our schedule. It's another thing if you're doing something very um, violating of the person, because how can a person possibly respond properly? They can't. So the church, for that reason, reserves it to a personal communication among persons that are personally present to each other in more ways than just the
1: phone. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Robert is in Detroit, Michigan, and he is listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. couple minutes left with Father Milady. Robert, what's your question today?
3: Well, my question is a follow-up on the marijuana question. Would the use by an adult of either chewing tobacco or regular smoking cigarettes be sinful?
2: Uh, again, I'll refer you to the catechism. The catechism says excessive smoking. So in a similar way that there might be some rarefied aspects in which a person might use morphine or something like that, uh, excessive smoking, which in my opinion would be, uh, something like a person knows they have lung cancer and they still continue to smoke, uh, would be considered sinful, but not the occasional cigar, the occasional cigarette, or the uh, um, yeah. even chewing tobacco up to a point. As you know, uh, Catholics are famous for being able to smoke. I remember I, my mother was a convert from Methodism. And she loved a lot of aspects about the Methodist church. But she said, because she grew up in the era before World War II where everybody smoked, you know. And she said one thing she did admire about the Catholic Church, though, was uh, in the Methodist Church, they all condemned smoking and drinking, but they all did it in private,
4: (laughs) at least with
2: the Catholics. You knew when they did vices, they were doing them publicly, and they didn't uh, shrink from them. Uh, No, uh, moderation in things is necessary in all things. And a person who moderately wished to make use of this uh, would not be considered to be committing a sin, no.
1: And really, when we talk about anything, uh, intent and knowledge play a role in the degree to which we're culpable, right? Well, but I don't think, uh,
2: again, this is talking about the objective action. I realize today that there's only one mortal sin left, and that is smoking in our society. You can kill children, you can do all these things as long as you don't smoke, for some reason they think you're moral, but this is not the way it's all. It, it's interpreted and it's certainly not Catholic morality. As I say, anything, uh, it's excessive speed, excessive smoking. That's what it says in the Catechism and I, I hold by that.
1: Father, um, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: Uh, okay. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever.
1: Amen. 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 On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own vice president of theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.